miniseries we began was right in the context of the entire book of Ephesians, which we had a theme for a while called Lifestyles of the Rich and Godly. But we come to chapter 6 here, and chapter 6 deals with the armor of God. So we tweaked our theme a little bit to match that chapter, and we're calling it now Battles of the Rich and Godly. In fact, today is part two of that lesson, and we're going to crawl through the rest of Ephesians 6. I hope that's okay. Today we're going to look at two verses. Next week we're going to look at one verse. The following week, probably another verse. So we're going to crawl through the rest of this just because there's so much good in it. And so stay with us, stay current. If you missed the lessons, you can find them online, and we will post those there. So if you have your Bibles, though, go to Ephesians chapter 6. And the verses we're going to look at today are verses 13 to 14. 13 to 14 of chapter 6. Before we get to the text, did you ever have to stay determined in order to accomplish something important? Did you ever have to stay determined in order to accomplish something important? Many of you have heard at least bits and pieces of my story and how I met my wife. And I won't share every every detail, but I had to stay determined one time to ask my wife to marry me. Uh, You might be thinking, why? Um, Let me give you a little context. When I moved to Michigan, I was, in my own mind and heart, I was sold out to the Lord. I was going to serve Him. I had... I had dated for the course of my life, and none of those worked out, those relationships. So I was in my mind thinking, I'm just going to stay single, serve the Lord, give him everything I got. And then I went to Michigan, and I met this girl named Janine, and she ruined everything for me (laughs) in a good way. And I met her. She actually was in the age group of the group of young adults that I was going to lead. Janine was a part of the church there, and uh, I met her just the first time I was visiting. Very superficial, no big deal. But she messaged me a couple weeks later online because she knew, she heard why I was seeking to move out to Michigan. And she, she heard that I was going to go into ministry and start a ministry on the college campuses. And so she messaged me online one day saying, I heard you're going into campus ministry. If you do, I'm interested in helping. And I was like, nice one-liner there, Janine. <laughs> hint, hint. No, she really was. She was, she was seeking to get into, into ministry and she was just looking to help with whatever aspect we needed. So Janine and I began a conversation online, but it was, again, very superficial, mainly about ministry and things like that. And I got to know Janine a little bit just by talking to her that way. Well, the chatting began to be flirting, things like that. And I wasn't really, in my mind, comfortable with that yet because I was thinking, i I, I got to stay focused here. I can't have a girl sidetrack me. <laughs> But Janine and I got to know each other a little bit. I eventually moved out to Michigan in the fall of 2008, and Janine and I started dating. We started a dating relationship, and after two or three weeks, I was convinced. I was convinced that Janine had something different than every girl I had known growing up and dated growing up, and I was convinced that she was going to be my bride. But I have to convince a few other people, right? I have to convince her, first and foremost, and her parents and things like that. But I'm just going to share with you that I had to stay determined because there were a lot of reasons that Janine and I shouldn't be together. And I'll just share a few of these. Maybe you know these, maybe you don't. But Janine is actually quite younger than me, quite significantly younger than me. She's eight years younger than I am. And so that's, I don't know if I call it a red flag, but that's definitely something to be careful about if you're moving to Michigan and some guy's eight years older uh, than a girl that he is dating. Um, so that's, that's one reason I just had to be careful with that. And I wasn't sure if that was a huge deal or not, but Janine is quite a bit younger than me. Her family, excuse me, her family was was good with me. And that was a big detail for me because I'd often struck out with the dads before. <laughs> but, uh, but her dad liked me. And I was like, okay, we had the same birthday. You know, he and I both liked Michigan sports. It was a, it was a connection there. So. But my family had never met Janine. 
I had never brought Janine back out east. I had never introduced them, which I was considering that was maybe a blessing. Because every time I introduced my girls to my parents growing up, for some reason after that, it fizzled. So I was thinking in my <laughs> I was thinking in my mind, it's their fault if I take them out of the picture. So she didn't meet my wife. She didn't meet my parents. My parents had never met Janine. Even though I'm, I'm, at this, I'm at this point convinced that I'm going to marry Janine. Uh, I wasn't supported financially. I was a missionary when I moved out to Michigan, and I tried a couple odd jobs that I shared with you. I worked at Starbucks for a month, and that didn't work out. I worked at a place called Circuit City. I did well, though. They promoted me, and then they closed their doors, and I lost my job again. So I didn't have any money. I wasn't doing well financially. It was 2008. If anyone remembers 2008, that was like one of the worst economic recessions our country's ever had. Not a good time to take on a financial responsibility without a job. And I wasn't doing well that way. I didn't have any money for a ring. I, if I wanted to get engaged to Janine, a ring was going to be pretty important to that process. Didn't have any money for a ring. Uh, here's a couple more. I was living at the church parsonage at the time. I didn't even have my own home or apartment. I was just living on the kindness of the church. They let me stay at their parsonage for several months. And so if and when I got a girl and got married, we're, we're going to have to live in the church parsonage. Another weird detail is I think her ex-boyfriend was trying to, he was on the rebound, trying to get Janine back during that time. And Janine was on the radar of a couple other guys. So uh, I had to stay determined to ask Janine to marry me. So some of you guys have heard the story, but I actually did get a ring. I got a proof for credit. I went out and bought a ring. And by the time I was convinced that Janine should be my wife or should be my bride, and I wanted to see if she would say yes to that, it was like a matter of three days before I got the ring and asked her. That's fast, right? Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> but I was, I was 28 years old. I, I guess the reason I'm sharing this is because I had always had a process of how it should look when you're dating somebody. Get to know, talk for this long, date for this long, let them meet the parents, and get everything in order, get your ducks in a row. I didn't have any of my ducks in a row. I don't think I even had any ducks. <laughs> but I was determined to ask Janine to marry me because she had something I had never seen before. And... Uh, Short story, long story short, 10 years later, six kids later, here we are, we're doing good, praise the Lord for that. I was talking to my sister, she was here for the Christmas season, and she said, Todd, you were very determined to marry Janine back uh, 10 years ago, and I said, you're right, I was. And I do it again, I do it all over, so, aw, you're supposed to say something there, okay, thank you, thank you. Did you ever have to stay determined in order to accomplish something important? Well, that's kind of what we're talking about today. Our lesson title today is called Standing Firm. Join me in Ephesians chapter 6 as we look at simply two verses today. Listen to the word of God. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to look at two verses today. It's all about battle, spiritual battle. That's why we're calling this battles of the rich and godly, because God has made us rich spiritually. God has made us godly. We are allowed to be godly and able to be godly now, but now we are in a battle, and it's, it's quite an epic battle that we're in, and it's, it's serious. It's nothing to joke about. It's nothing to be lighthearted about, because it is a true battle that we're in with the devil, and we talked about that last week. We have three goals that we want to look at today. Our first goal is this, to be convinced that we are to stand firm against the devil. That's kind of what we're talking about today. The whole context is standing firm. So that's goal number one. Goal number two is to daily fasten on the belt of truth that we're going to explain and talk about. And goal number three is to daily put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
two very important pieces of armor that God's going to give us in order to stand firm against the devil. Last time we talked about how important it is to be strong in the Lord. Remember it said in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I will emphasize this once again. He is our only hope. He is our only hope for gaining victory over the evil forces of darkness. We need to remember that. We are not strong on our own, not spiritually. We need his help. So we need to remember that context because the armor that he's going to tell us about works in the context of being strong in the Lord. You need something from the Lord. And we're going to look at a couple pieces of armor today that help us do that very thing. But once we are empowered by God's strength through seeking him for that strength, we're exhorted to stand firm in the evil day. And that evil day is today. We are in the evil day. It's not one day. It's a period. But we are in that period right now. It is the evil day, and we are now exhorted to stand firm in the battle. I uh, got a quote from Matthew Henry that I want to share that I think is quite interesting, and I've liked this quote for a lot of years when looking at this passage, and I want to listen to what he says. He said, It is observable that among them all there is no armor given for the back. For if we turn our back upon the enemy, we lie exposed. Isn't that a good quote? There's no armor given to us for the back, meaning we are not to turn around. We are to stand our ground. We are to go forward in this battle. And all the pieces of armor help us do that very thing. So we're to stand firm and go forward in this battle. Next week, we'll look at going forward. But today, we're going to look at what it looks like to stand firm. But we must realize turning around is not an option for the Christian soldier. It's not an option to turn around. We must take this fight head on to the devil. That's a little intimidating, isn't it, to hear? We have to go head on against the devil. We can't run. We can't cower. We can't hide. We can't say, uh, here's the white flag. I don't want to fight. We have to take him head on because going backwards is certain death. The only road to life is progress. Progress, progressing in the Christian life, progressing in maturity, progressing in holiness. Going backwards is not, not an option for us. So before we look at the pieces of armor and what they mean, we need to understand the exhortation to stand firm against the evil one. What does that mean? What does that look like, to stand firm against the evil one? You see, the devil's a bully. He's a bully. He's the definition of a bully. He's an accuser of Christians. Did you know that? He accuses us constantly before God, and he accuses us to our own minds and hearts, basically telling God and telling us that God has no reason to love us. God shouldn't love us. God doesn't love us. Look at who you are. Look at what you do. There's no way God could love someone like you. And he kind of tells the same things to God. God, these people are not worthy of your love. You can't love them. Look at how bad they are. Look at how evil they are. Because his primary goal, the Satan's big goal, is our eternal destruction. And we talked about that last week. Because it would do this one thing. It would rob God of his glory. And that is Satan's ultimate prize. To rob and to strip the glory of God. And he will accomplish that not by trying to hurt God directly because he can't. He's going to try to hurt us. He's going to try to get us to abandon the path that Christ has put us on. But God, thankfully, has the opposite plan. God's plan is to defeat the devil, to help us defeat the devil. He's going to defeat the strongest, smartest, biggest bully that's ever existed, and he's going to do it with us weak creatures. And that will give God a tremendous amount of glory. So you can tell there are two people, two persons that are 
having two very different goals. God is seeking to glorify himself, and the devil is seeking to rob his glory. And we're in the middle. We're sort of pawns in the devil's game. But the way he practically carries out his goal to destroy us is by helping us undo ourselves. If you know anything about scripture, it actually says that the Satan, the devil, cannot actually move us off the path of Christ, can he? He can't actually do anything to harm us. All he can do is lie to us. I want to take you to a passage in Romans 8. I don't know if this is on the screen or not. But it's a really common passage, Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. I just want to read this now. Listen to what it says. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that? The devil knows that, and he knows it's true. He can't actually tangibly do anything to us. So he has one play. The devil has one play, deceive us and trick us into getting us to leave the path ourselves. That's all he can do. That's his one play. So he's going to take all of his energy, all of his tools towards that one thing, tricking us and deceiving us into walking off the path of Christ because he can't tangibly do anything himself. So he has to convince us that there are better things than Jesus. He has to convince us that there is a better path than the narrow path that leads to eternal life. He has to convince us that there's a better reward with more joy than the one waiting for us in heaven. That's his one play, to deceive and to lie to us. And he's going to accomplish this by highlighting the difficult things in the Christian path, while at the same time blurring the amazing gifts we have in Christ. He's going to accomplish this by blurring the dangers of sin and at the same time highlighting the pleasures of this world. Have you guys ever heard of what's called portrait mode on your cameras now? They have a thing called portrait mode where, I don't think my Blackberry has that, but uh, the, new, the new phones do. They have something called portrait mode where when they take a picture of you, the background is blurred, right? I think that's what portrait mode is. So the person, the thing you're taking a picture of stands out even more. Well, that's kind of what the devil is doing. He wants to blur all the good things. And he wants to highlight and zoom in on all the scary things, all the things that are dangerous and things that seem bad in the Christian life. And he's really good at it. He started this when he did this to Eve in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that, right? That was his one play with Eve. He blurred the dangers of sin against God, saying, hey, you're not going to die, no big deal. If you eat this fruit, nothing bad's going to happen. He blurred the amazing gift of staying faithful to the Lord, because that's an amazing gift. And he highlighted the pleasures of sin. Eve. What are you missing out on? If by biting into this apple, God doesn't want you to do it, he's probably holding some joy back from you. And Eve was deceived. She ate the apple, she gave it to Adam, he ate the apple, and they both died. That's where death entered the picture. Because Satan deceived, and man and woman listened to the devil. So the devil is very much like a fisherman. He is. If you guys have ever gone fishing, you have to use bait, right? You can't just stick a hook in the water, can you? I wouldn't recommend that if you're going fishing to just drop a hook in the water and hope a fish bites onto that hook. What do you have to do? You have to dress it up. You use a lure or some big, nice, juicy worm so that the fish does not see the hook. That's the whole point of fishing. See the lure, see how flashy, how colorful it is. See the big, juicy worm and hide the fact that there's a big, deadly hook behind that. That is what the devil does. He highlights the good 
Look what you can have. Look at how sweet this is. Look at how pleasurable this is. And he, and he blurs the fact that there's a big old hook behind it. He's a master fisherman. And his prize is our eternal destruction. That's what the devil wants from this. And then we find out in this passage that we're called to stand firm against the devil. Because of this, abandonment of the Christian path, it's not an option. It's not an option to abandon the Christian path. Abandonment of the Christian path is certain death. Wherever you are, you must go forward. If you're an infant in Christ, you must move forward. If you've been in the Christian path a long time, you must go forward. You can't abandon the path, neither can I. Going backward is not an option. Staying put is not an option. We can't be flaky, we can't be shaky, and we can't be unsure. We need to be determined, we need to be forward-thinking, we need to be steadfast. Those are all words the, Christian, uh, the Bible uses to help us go forward. And the devil has to see this. He has to see that we are standing our ground. Satan needs to see that we're immovable objects of his deceptions. And we have this wonderful promise from James 4, verse 7, that says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Haven't you heard people say that about standing up to bullies? The best way to stand up to a bully is to stand your ground. I don't know if I recommend that, but I've heard that before as, as instructions. To stand up to the bully, the only thing they know is when someone stands up to them. Well, it is true for Satan. You don't cower in fear. You don't hide. You don't throw up the white flag. He will continue, continue to pummel you if you do that. You need to stand firm, resist him, and go forward. And the devil, we are promised from God, he will flee from you because he's a smart warrior. The devil is not going to waste his time on difficult people, people that are determined, people that are sure that they want to stand firm and want to go forward. If the devil sees that kind of confidence, he's going to move on to weaker targets. He's not going to waste his time on people who are determined to stand their ground. So that's why the exhortation is given to us today, that we are to stand firm. Dan read a portion of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter verse 5, and it says this, that the devil is a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. I want you to picture a lion in the wilderness looking for the zebra by himself, drinking from the stream. The devil is looking for someone vulnerable, someone weak, someone not connected to God, not disciplining themselves, not connected to his church, and he's going to find that person, and he's going to attack. But the person that's determined, like we start our lesson here with, who's connected to the Lord, who's disciplining themselves for this battle, who's connected to the church, the devil's going to have a much, much more difficult time with that person. And that's why are we, we are exhorted to stand firm. So the question is, what does it look like to stand firm? What does it look like to stand firm against the devil? And if I could boil it down to one word, it looks like confidence. It looks like confidence. But not confidence in us. We are not to be prideful in us prideful in our abilities, prideful in our strength. We are to have confidence in our Lord. Confidence in who he is, his strength, his power, his might. In other words, we need to be convinced that our Lord is real. He's real. He's alive. He's there. He's listening. He's available to us. Our Lord is real. Second of all, he's almighty. Our God is almighty. He's not just mighty. He's almighty. He has every source of power within him. And if we get that, we too will be almighty. 
Third of all, he loves us. We have to be convinced that he loves us with an eternal covenantal love. Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that the Lord loves you and desires to help you? Because that will give you the confidence you need. And fourthly, that accomplishing his will is worth the struggle. We need to be convinced that even amidst the struggle, because there is struggle in the Christian life, there is struggle in this battle, we need to be convinced that his will is worth the struggle. Answer that question inwardly. Is this battle worth it? Is this struggle worth it? For the sake of our God's will, is it worth it? I hope you would say confidently, it's worth it. I will go forward. I want to go forward. God, my God, my Lord, is worthy of this struggle. And if we have those things, then we're, we're confident. And if the devil sees confident, it's going to help us resist him. Because nothing is more powerful against a bully than true confidence. To stand firm in the face of evil and danger is a true power move. Because the bully wants to make you cower. Wants to make you second guess. Wants to make you weak. Wants to make you fearful of everything. Some bullies like the devil are using uh, fear tactics primarily against their prey. You ever been bullied, right? Isn't that how bullies work? They use fear tactics. They belittle you. They make you feel insignificant. And that's how the devil works. He has to shake our confidence. He has to hope that we lay down and give in to his attacks. Because if he sees someone strong, if he sees someone who's resisting him, he's going to relieve. He's going to go find someone easier to attack. And Paul wants us to know that the devil has declared war against us. Satan has declared war against Christians. And we talked about this last week, but if someone declares war against you, if another country declares war against us, you don't just say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not into this battle thing. No, you fight. You resist them. And we only have two options. To die or to stand our ground. Our options are very limited and very, very simple. To die, to give in to the devil, to listen to his lies, or to resist him, stand firm, go forward, and finish our course. Those are options. They're simple, right? It doesn't make it easy, but those are simple options. I can listen, I can buy into the lies, I can abandon Christ, or I can stand my ground and resist the devil. And that's what we are exhorted to do. But I want to look at some common fear tactics the devil uses to shake our confidence, okay? Some common things that he says, and I, I came up with these things, and these things are conjecture. I don't know if he's actually said these things to you, but these are types of things that I hear from the devil in my mind a lot, okay? Because he's trying to shake my confidence. Number one thing he likes to say a lot is he likes to say you're not really saved. Someone like you can't be saved. You're too bad. You're too far off. Do you know who you really are? How can God like some, love someone like you, Todd? How can God love someone like you? Think about what you've done. Think about who you are. How could God save you? That is a common one. The devil loves to whisper that into our ear because if we listen to that, we will buy into it and go, you're right. I'm too far gone. I'm too wicked. I'm too carnal. I'm too messed up. I'm too emotional. I'm too anxious. Whatever it is. And we have to resist him. We have to stand firm and listen to what the scriptures say because the scriptures do not represent that. It says, the Lord doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Does that sound like God doesn't want to save you? It sounds like my God is going to bend over backwards in order to save each one of us. And he did. 
by the cross. Here's another one he likes to use all the time. You can't get over your sins, especially those dark secret ones that plague you. They are always going to characterize you. You'll always be this type of person, and I still own you. I heard that one a lot, especially at the beginning of my testimony, where the devil was saying that to me. He's going, Todd, come on, we know who you really are. You're a hypocrite. You're always going to be a hypocrite. You're never going to get over these sins. Do you remember several weeks ago we talked about when Jesus helped Lazarus raise from the dead? Do you remember that? Where Lazarus was dead, he was entombed for four days. Jesus arrives, and he says, roll the stone away, and he yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus emerged from the tomb, wrapped in these burial clothes. Jesus raised him from the dead. And I was thinking about that with this, with this one. The devil loves to say that to us. You're still in the tomb. You can't come out of the tomb. You're still in your burial clothes. You're a dead man. You're, you're a sinner. You can't come out. But the Lord tells us the very opposite. Come out. Repent. Come out from your sins. I have saved you. I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. I have made you whiter than snow. Come out from the tomb. And the devil will say the very opposite. Stay where you are. You can't possibly come out. It's a lie. It's a deception. He says this too quite often. The Christian path is lonely. He's going to highlight the loneliness in the Christian path. There's no one else who wants this. If you go this way, you're not going to have any friends or family members that are there to help you. If you do this, you are completely and utterly on your own. That's a fear tactic, right? He tries to tell us that, so we listen to the lies and go, yeah, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to do this on my own. This is scary. I'm going to go back where my friends are. That, I'm going to go back where it's comfortable. And he tells us that all the time. You're never going to make it on your own. But we have to discount all of the word of God who says, you're not alone. I am with you. I will go before you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. Not only that, but we have a church who desires all of us to go forward. You're not alone. But the devil loves to highlight that one. You are on your own. Here's another one. You're never going to finish. You'll never finish the Christian path. You're a hypocrite. We both know who you really are. Christ is going to disown you on Judgment Day. So no matter what you think you're doing in the Christian life, in the Christian race, it's not authentic. You're a hypocrite. Deep down, we both know it. Lie, accusation, lies and accusation. That's all he does because he wants us to turn around. Guys, that's savage. That's evil. But that is the devil. Here's one last one that I thought of. I hear this a lot, no matter what circle I go to, that if God is love, why is your life so painful? You might as well turn back to the world. The world has more joy to offer you, Todd. God's path is just going to steal from you and eventually abandon you altogether. The world has more to offer you. Lies. Does the world have more to offer you than our great God? Absolutely not. Is there more joy in the things of the world that are going away and perishing than the eternal glory of our great God? Not a chance. But he has to say this one to us because if, he said that to Eve. Like, Eve, listen, why would God withhold this fruit from you? To be like God? Does that sound like a good God? To withhold joy and knowledge from you? See how bad he is? When in reality, the devil is the one who wants to hurt and harm and steal and strip everything that is good in your life. I just wanted to highlight a few of those things because these are phrases Satan whispers in our ears and they're full of deceptions. If you notice, they're half-truths. Some of these have truth within them, but it's not telling the whole story, is it? And that's how the Satan works. He doesn't want to dangle in front of us an absolute flat-out lie. 
because most of us are too smart for that. He has to find a half-truth, wrap it in a lie, and hope that we bite into it. And these do not represent our God, and they do not represent the scriptures. They do not represent what our Lord has taught us, do they? If you go to the scriptures, you will not see these phrases. You hear them in your own brain. You hear them when the devil whispers them to you. In the dark times, in the alone times, in the hard times, God doesn't love you. You're alone. You can't do this. And we need to stand firm on what the Lord has taught us. And so this highlights our need once again to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Think how important that is. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Is that important for us? It's important for me. I was given another example this past week of how weak I am when I hurt my back again last week. <laughs> so there I am on Monday prepping a lesson called Standing Firm while I'm laying down in my bed. I'm like, huh, I see what you're doing, Lord. And I looked up and I said, Lord, this has to be you. It has to be you. It has to be your strength. It can't be mine. I can't rest on my laurels or what you've taught me. I have to rest on your daily provisions, your strength. And the Lord did strengthen me. And he will strengthen each of us if we go to him for that strength. So we need the confidence that the Lord is real, that he's almighty, that he loves us with his eternal covenantal love that cannot be broken, and that accomplishing his will is worth the struggle. Because you and I, even together, are too weak for the devil. We need his strength. I hope you've been convinced of that already. I'll say it this way because I like illustrations. Standing firm without God's strength is similar to trying to keep your footing in the midst of an F5 tornado. I want you to imagine that. You're trying to stand your ground, stand firm, and an F5 tornado is right on top of you. Okay, That's what it's like when you fight on your own strength against the devil. Versus someone who wants to stand firm with God's strength is like trying to keep your footing on flat grass with a light breeze while you have shoes with spikes. You see the difference? It's an illustration, but you see the difference of how it is when we fight with the Lord versus without the Lord. Without the Lord, we're definitely not going to stand our ground. So we need to be determined to stand firm, but we need to do so in the strength that God provides. Do you see the two things coming together? There's a discipline we have, but a strength that we don't have. We use our discipline, and we call out to God for the strength that only he can give us. When the discipline and the strength come together, we stand our ground. But we cannot do it without God's strength. And this is why I'm going to use an illustration here. I've stole this from my mom. I have to give her credit. This is not my illustration, but I think it works really well in the mind. But I'm going to do something here that's going to look quite odd. You're probably wondering why the vacuum is up on stage. No one forgot that. I'm going to use this as an illustration. And I'm going to do something here. I'm going to make a mess. Okay. I got some of these oyster crackers. Sorry, guys, who cleaned the building. All right, let's keep it on the stage. Okay. Now I want you to notice something. There's a mess, right? And I'm going to take the vacuum, and I'm just going to sweep it up. Okay, we'll just get rid of this mess right now. See if this works. Okay, let's turn it on. All right, doing good. We're doing good. Doing good. That's a big mess. Why is it picking it up? Can anybody help me? Why is this not working? Come on, help me out. Why is it not working? Right here. That is why it's not working. I'm not plugged in to the power. You get it, right? If I plug this in, I don't want to hurt my back again. If I plug this in, I know this better work, right? 
I want to see how this goes now. Now when I turn the power on, it goes a lot better. You see that? I'm probably not going to get all of it. Okay. I'm showing my vacuuming skills at the same time. Okay, you see the illustration, right? It's simple. It's simple, but it works in your mind. If we're going to try to do this on our own, we're like a vacuum cleaner that's not plugged in. There's no power. There's no power. The power comes from the Lord, and we have to plug into that power. That's the exhortation today. Find the Lord, plug into him, and it will go much better. See, the fear of Satan's what-ifs are going to work in our minds if we don't factor in God's bigness, God's love for us, and God's promise that we can defeat the devil. We have to listen to God. We need to listen to the scriptures. I've brought these guys up several times already, but these, at some point we're just going to teach this story because it's such a good story. But if you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys are heroes of mine because they stood firm in the face of a fiery furnace. And I can't imagine that. I can't imagine what that must have been like to stare into the fiery furnace and for someone to threaten you, throwing you in if you don't bow down to their statue, and for you to stand your ground and say, I'm not going to. I'm not going to stand, excuse me, I'm not going to bow to your and give glory to the one true God only. But these guys did. Is it because fire can't hurt people? That's ridiculous. Fire can hurt them. They knew fire could hurt them. They knew it was possible that they would have to go into the flames and die. But they trusted God's bigness. They trusted God's love and they trusted God's promises to take care of them if they strive to do his will and seek his glory alone. And maybe they remember what, what God said in Deuteronomy 31. I want to read a passage here from Deuteronomy 31. Have your Bibles, you can turn there. I think it's going to be on the screen. Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 to 6. Maybe this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego we're recalling. Listen to what it says. So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over to the Jordan. The, Lord's, the Lord, your God himself, will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go, will go over your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Right? I mean, that's an amen, and I wonder if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are recalling these types of passages going, he's not going to abandon us. My God is much bigger, much stronger, much scarier than a fiery furnace or King Nebuchadnezzar. So what can anyone really threaten us with if God goes before us, if God is on our team? There's nothing to fear. And that's the kind of courage we need. We'll get back to this, but in order to stand firm and not be shaken by the fears, the fear tactics of the devil, we need to look to who at all times? There's one we need to look to. It's Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. See, Jesus is the perfect representation of who our God is. 
I don't know everything about God, and neither do you. But when I look to Jesus, I see God. I see what God is like. Jesus was compassionate, meaning our God is compassionate. Because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. That's what it says in Hebrews. Jesus never once abandoned his disciples, which means neither will God abandon us. Jesus went to every length imaginable in order to save and protect his people, which means so will our God. The devil, on the other hand, is the father of lies. He cannot tell the truth. So we must be ready to resist him and his temptations, to stand firm in the face of his deceptions. And guys, this is a fight to the death. It's a fight to the death. And it's unfortunate that this battle is so brutal. But this is a fight to the death, meaning Christianity cannot be a single part of your life. It cannot be a fraction of your life. You are in for the fight of your life against the devil. And the only conclusions are he loses or we lose. He's destroyed or we're destroyed. It's a fight to the death. And so we need to stand firm. We need to stand our ground and we need to seek God for his strength in order to stand our ground. And that's why God follows this lesson up with a few pieces of armor. If you are willing to stand firm, if you are desiring to stand firm, if you are ready to discipline yourself to stand firm, God has some wonderful pieces of armor he's going to give you to help you in this battle. And these pieces of armor are not physical. We know that. These are spiritual pieces of armor. There's not actually anything physically we put on for this battle. These are spiritual things. But girding ourselves with these pieces of armor is more important than anything you and I can put on in the flesh. It's more important than carrying a gun or a knife to help you feel secure. These spiritual pieces of armor are given to us from God. They're the most important thing you can put on. And some people like to carry a gun, right? Some people carry a gun because it gives them that sense of security. Whether you have a gun at home or a gun that you carry around, it gives you that sense that even if something dangerous comes, I'm going to be okay. That's what these pieces of armor are precisely supposed to do for us. Give us the security we need against the devil. If we're equipped with God's armor, we are going to be fine. If we're not equipped with God's armor, we're not going to be fine. And so the first piece of armor we want to look at today is what we call the belt of truth. The belt of truth. God says to fasten on the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? Certainly truth is all over God's word, right? All you need to do to find truth is open up the Bible. Any page, any chapter, New Testament, Old Testament, and you will find truth. And primarily, I think the truth he's talking about is gospel truth. That's the one overarching truth that we find in Scripture. It's it's in every book. It's in every page. It's in every sentence. This gospel truth that God tells us is the primary truth we need. But I think the best translation for the term belt is actually this phrase or this term girdle. And it's not like the term girdle we would use today. But it's this term girdle that back in the days, it was like this rope-like cord they would tie around their waist. And what it signified is they were ready for service. They would tie this rope belt around their waist and it would signify they were ready for service. So the symbol of girdle was much more important than you and I would use today. And a belt even isn't very significant because a belt, all it does is hold your pants up. But a girdle signified something. It signified that someone was ready for service, ready to serve to serve others, to serve their God. And we find some similar language to this in Luke chapter 12, 
verses 35 to 38. Listen to the exhortation that Jesus gave us. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 38. He says this. He says, stay dressed for action. There's the girdle and service idea. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Do you see the idea of service? Being ready to serve? The girdle, the belt is supposed to signify, God, I'm ready to serve you. I am ready to serve you. You have taught me the gospel. You have taught me your love. You have taught me the truths that I need to know. And now I am ready to serve you in whatever capacity. And the belt of truth signifies those two things. That you understand truth. And based on that, you're ready to serve. You understand what God is. You understand what God has done for you. And now you're ready to serve him. And that's what the girdle signified, the belt signified. And we are, as God's people, supposed to be servants, right? Ready to serve God, ready to serve his people at all times. And serving glorifies God and it harms Satan. I like that aspect. I like that when we serve God and we serve others, we're also doing damage to the kingdom of darkness. So the belt of truth also holds everything in place because that's what belts do. They hold you together. They keep you together. If we have fastened on the belt of truth, then we are secure. We're secure in our minds. We're not easily losing our wits. We're not easily swayed by the half-truths of Satan. But the old-style girdle represented ready for service, to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he sees fit. And truth does both for us. Truth. It holds us together and it prepares our hearts for service to the Lord. Truth does both. Truth should do both. If you're listening to God's truth, you are captivated by that truth. And that truth motivates and inspires you to serve your God. And that's what the belt of truth is signifying. Guys, this is why truth cannot be overemphasized. We cannot overemphasize truth because it secures us and it prepares us. And you need both in the Christian circles. Without truth, we have nothing to hold us together. We're like kites in the wind. You ever flown a kite before? Flying a kite can either be really enjoyable or really stressful based on how windy and where the wind is going that day, right? Without truth, this is what we're like. Wherever the wind desires to take us is where we're going to fly. We go as, as a kite would go. We go wherever the wind is going. We go with whatever the devil is saying, whatever common man is saying, whatever the world thinks is best. We're not tethered. Truth tethers us. So we cannot fly away. It grounds us. It tethers us. It holds us together. Our culture that we live in is, bunch, is like a bunch of spiritual kites. It is. There's people flying all over the place, going, this sounds good, that sounds good, that sounds logical, this sounds logical. And they're flying all over the place. Today it's this, tomorrow it's this, and back and forth. But scripture tethers us. And it says, no, the word of God does not change. If this was true 5,000 years ago, it's true today. So it tells us to stay our ground, to keep our ground, to keep our footing. We need truth at all times. 
And it's honest. It takes discipline to stay tethered. Think about your past week or month. Were you tethered to the Word of God every day? Probably not, right? You probably know in the past week or the past month, there was a time that you were sort of flying about like a kite. Circumstances took you here. Logic took you here. Listening to the world took you here. You got back to Scripture. You were flying all over the place like a kite. And that's what God doesn't want for us because kites don't go anywhere necessary, anywhere profitable. They are just flying wherever the wind takes them. And we are supposed to go in a direction. We are supposed to go forward in the Christian path. And the only thing that can do that for us is truth. Truth tells us where to go, how to think, how to act, how to live. We need truth. And so the devil, he's the master. He's the master at taking God's truth and using it to knock down other truths. So this is why it's so important to know truth and to know scripture, because the devil likes to take truth and tweak it, contort it, pervert it, and give it back to us. And say, here you go, here's truth, listen to this. And so I think the two things he loves to pit together all the time is this aspect of truth against love. Okay, you can have truth or you can have love, but you've got to pick one and you've got to let the other go. That's why there's such a struggle in the church today. We find churches that say, we're all about love. We're all about compassion. We're all about this and just bring you in, stay who you are. We're going to love you no matter what. It's all acceptance but they're very low on truth, right? And then you got some churches that are high on truth. We are here to teach the doctrine of the word of God, and they're not compassionate, and they're not gentle, and they're not easy to be around. And it feels like God, Satan has told us, you got to pick one. You can only pick one. Take truth or take love, but you cannot have them both. But scripture does not speak that way. This is a constant struggle. If we desire to be more loving people, do we have to let truth go? No, we don't. If we desire to be people of truth, do we have to let love go? No, we do not. But as soon as we let truth go, we also let love go. Because they're a team. They are a team. Truth without love is impossible. And love without truth is impossible. Did you know that? You can't have one without the other. If you have truth and not love, you don't have truth either. If you have love without truth, you don't have love either. They're a team. And so I'm going to look at a few aspects of how the devil likes to take truth and pit it against love. And I want you to remember these are half-truths, okay? They are not full lies because a full lie would not be easily received by us. We would, most of us would go, that's a full lie. I know that's you, Satan. I'm not going to listen. So what does he have to do? He has to take half-truth and put it with a perversion so that we'll listen to it. This is what he says. God is full of mercy, Right? God is full of mercy. Your God is a God of mercy. Therefore, here's the logic, he must wink at sin. If God is merciful, he must wink at sin. Is that true? Half of it is. God is full of mercy, but does he wink at sin? No, he does not. Here's another one. God hates evil. Therefore, he must be a harsh taskmaster, impossible to please. If he hates evil, if he's that kind of God, then you're never going to please him. Is it true? Once again, half of it is. God does hate evil, but is he a harsh taskmaster, impossible to please? Is that our God? No, it's not. It certainly is not. God is willing to forgive. Therefore, we can sin with impunity. 
This one, this one is around a lot today, unfortunately. If God is willing to forgive, don't we have a license to sin? I mean, look how, look how willing your God is to forgive. Therefore, sin is not a big deal because God's just going to give you a blank check with forgiveness on it and just use it anytime you want. Is that true? No, that's not true. God is willing to forgive, but he hates sin. God detests sin and sinfulness. Let's keep going. God will throw the wicked in hell one day. Therefore, my imperfections are always going to leave me unconfident in my relationship with him. That shouldn't be true, should it? If God is a God who hates sin, he's also a God who is forgiving and merciful and desires your well-being. But the devil likes to say, well, listen, if he's going to throw the, hell in, or he's going to throw the wicked in hell one day, then how are you ever going to be confident in your relationship with God? Here's another one. We've talked about this already. God is love, therefore truth doesn't matter. If God is love, then what's truth about? We don't really need it. It's not a big deal. God is love. He's going to love you at all times. There was a book that came out a few years ago called Love Wins. And the whole aspect of love wins is there must be no hell because God is love. Now, logically, can I get there? Yes. In my own frail logic, I can understand that if God is love, logically, there probably isn't a hell. But the scriptures do not say that. The scriptures say God is love and there is hell. So who do I listen to? Do I listen to the logic of the day? Do I fly around like a kite and go, oh, that sounds great. Love wins. God will never send anyone to hell. You must not care about sin anymore. Or do I listen to the pages of scripture and go, wait a minute. That's not what my God says. That's not how he thinks. And the last one. God loves truth, therefore he cannot be that loving. Right? Because they can't go together. Truth and love can't be on the same team. It's one or the other. So if God is truth, he can't be that loving. So you always need to walk on eggshells with your God. Is that true? It's not true. God is compassionate and kind and long-suffering and patient. But he also loves truth. And he also commands us to walk in that truth. So truth and love cannot be and must not be separated. Don't listen to the devil who wants to separate these two things. Most likely the belt of truth that we're talking about here refers to truth as a whole. Truth as a whole. Not parts of truth, but the entire story of truth. That's why we need to know the whole counsel of God. Not just the parts that sound good. Because the belt of truth is referring to truth as a whole. Number one, truth is knowing and agreeing with what God says about himself. That he is one true God. That he is holy, holy, holy. And that his glory is the highest pursuit imaginable. That he is sovereign. That God is all-knowing. That God is almighty. That God is love. Truth is knowing who God is and agreeing with what God says about himself. Number two, truth is also knowing and agreeing with what he says about us. What does God say about mankind? We are sinners. We are rebels of God by nature. We are filthy before the eyes of God and in desperate need of cleansing. To have the belt of truth, you've got to say yes to that as well. You're right, God. I am. You've taught me this. Number three, truth is agreeing with what God says about our need for his grace and for his salvation. That without his grace, without his salvation, we are condemned forever. And with his salvation, we can find full forgiveness and full spiritual restoration. But most importantly, number four, truth tells us that Jesus is the only hope for mankind. The one 
true hope for mankind. When we agree with and believe in God's pure holiness, when we agree with and believe in our utter sinfulness, those truths motivate us to run to Jesus for refuge. God is holy. I am not. There is a chasm. There is a separation. There is judgment coming because God is holy and I am not. I need someone to be my righteousness. I need someone to pay my debt. And it causes us to run to Jesus for refuge. To be reconciled once again to our Father. To come back together in a loving covenantal relationship. But the good news of the gospel is also the belt of truth because it teaches us that God loved us while we were sinners. Not after we cleaned ourselves up, he goes, finally, you're lovable, I'll take you. No, it tells us that he loved us while we were sinners. He sent Jesus to the cross while we were ungodly. And if God did that while we were his enemies, then God's love for us has no bounds. And he's willing to help us to every length imaginable. If we know and are convinced by God's love through Jesus, then we are secure, not insecure. Which means the devil cannot toss us around easily. So besides just knowing what the word of God says, we need to know the word of God experientially. True? Not just head knowledge. I need to know God's love experientially. We need to know that we have God's full resume of love before us. Think about what God has done for you. Seriously. Over the past year, over the past several months, over the past several days, consider the resume of God's love. Don't you experience God's love every day? Not just read about it, but don't you experience it? Are you convinced that he is real and that he loves you based on your own experiences? Based on him taking care of you and watching out for you and providing for you? And we need to go over that resume quite frequently. We need to remember what God has done because it tethers us to God. When we forget, we're like kites. And the Israelites, for chapters and chapters of the Old Testament, are just flying around like a kite, forgetting what God had done for them, forgetting God's resume of love. And God said, remember, recall what I've done for you. And the gospel is that two-edged sword. It heals us. And at the same time, it motivates us to serve God the way he desires, to serve him properly. The gospel of love teaches us that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. And whatever Jesus wants from our lives, he should have it. But what does the devil want to do? He wants to shake the foundation of these truths. If he can convince us that God's love is tried and tested, we're not going to remain with the Lord, Right? We're going to question God's love every time something painful comes into our life, going, God, if you're loving, why does this hurt? If you're loving, why is this so hard? If you're loving, what about my friends and family? Why aren't they around more? If you're loving, God, why does this life hurt so bad? But if you're tethered to the truth and you're recalling what he's done for you, you won't fly around like a kite. You'll remember. You'll praise God. You'll stand your ground. But God, or the, excuse me, the devil also wants to shake our confidence that God is worthy of our service. And we also need to remember the gospel for that reason, so that we remember, God, you're worthy. Even if it's difficult, even if there's a fiery furnace or a lion's den, my God is worthy of my service because of what he's done for me. 
So in order to stand firm, we need to recall the gospel truths. We need to go over God's resume of love in our lives. And when the devil wants to lie to us and get us to question God's love, which he will today, this week, again, we will be prepared to answer back with God's resume of love. No, devil, that's not true. He's done this for me. He did this for me. He was here for me then. I saw him here. I remember this over and over and over. And if the devil hears that, he's going to move on. He's looking for someone that has forgotten these things. Someone who's like a kite. Not someone who's going over the resume of love in their lives over and over and over. So we need to fasten on the belt of truth, and we need to do this daily, because we've lost the practice of discipline. I believe that. I think we've lost the practice of discipline. Going about our days without the belt of truth and expecting to stand firm. But that's an impossibility. If you're not rooted and grounded in truth, can you stand firm? No, you cannot. You will be tossed around like a kite. And since the devil is disciplined every single day to lie to us, we need to be disciplined every single day to open up the scriptures, to be further trained by truth, because truth is what helps us stand our ground. And without truth, we're goners. We're not going to stand our ground. We're going to be thrown around. We're going to go backwards. We're going to abandon the path. And we cannot and we will not win this battle without truth and the discipline to find that truth. Does that describe your Christian walk today? Does it describe your Christian walk that you're disciplining yourself for battle by relentlessly seeking after God's truth? Does that describe you today? I wish I could say at all times that describes my discipline, but it does not at all times. But it should, because I want you to imagine going into a physical battle without any knowledge of your enemy, without any battle plan, and without any use of how to use, any knowledge of how to use your weapons. You don't have any knowledge of your enemy. You don't have any idea what you're supposed to do in that battle. And you have no idea how to use your weapons. Without truth, guys, we're sitting ducks. We need truth. And that's why here at Wyoming Valley Church, we want to teach truth and how to use truth. Because it is the belt of truth. It does hold us together, and it does motivate us to serve our God. Now, we have another piece of armor to look at, but it's too late in the day. So just to do this service, we're going to cut it off here today. Okay, We're going to pick this up at part three, I guess you can call it next week, and look at the breastplate of righteousness. But I want you to think about the belt of truth today. I want you to think about standing firm today. I want you to think how important it is to stay tethered to this and your church. The things that hold you together that God has given you are not to be lackadaisical about. They're not to go, oh, whatever my schedule allows, I'll get into the word of God. Oh, if all the stars align and everything is ideal, then I'll get to church. Is that a person who's disciplined? No, it's not. A person who's determined and disciplined does whatever necessary to get truth in their minds. I want that to describe Wyoming Valley Church because I want us to stand firm against the devil. And we only can with God's strength and with the truth that he provides. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this lesson. It's long, it's big, even though it's only two verses. There's so much there. Father, I thank, for, I thank you for what you've taught us today. I thank you for once again being willing to be our strength, being willing to help us, because this battle is real and it's vicious. But God, you love us, and you've promised to never forsake us and never leave us if we want what you want. Father, help us all individually. Help us as a church. 
to tether ourselves down with truth, to walk in love as you've taught us, to be people who love your word, who love the gospel, who seek to tell it and teach it and proclaim it to anyone we see, but Father, most of all, to discipline ourselves, to walk in it and to resist the devil this very day. Help us be our strength for your glory. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.